Hi, hello, bonjour and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Muletala. Today, I am thrilled because I am bringing you an interview I did over the summer with an amazing, amazing mind. My guest is Yancy Strickler. Yancy is an author and entrepreneur, very well known to be the co-founder of Kickstarter. He is also the founder of the Bento Society and the author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. I got to know Yancy on a podcast, actually. I was listening in spring 2020 to the James Altucher show and something about the project that was at the time the development of bentoism and the bento society really struck a chord with me and eh, a couple of weeks later I found myself on a zoom call and drawing my first bento discovering the concept in this conversation, I asked Yancy first about his start as a young writer in New York City. And I was very curious to hear from him about ideas. He was so hands-on at Kickstarter and was privy to so many ideas being developed and, and taking root as real things in the world. We also talk about value and the self or self-interest. Of course, we talk about the bento as a tool to help us go beyond near-term orientation. And then we touched on lots of other subjects, including the beauty of learning from other people and, and much more. I'm going to leave it here. So without further ado, I am delighted to share with you this conversation with Yancy Strickler. Enjoy. Hey, Yancy. It's so good to see you. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Hey, Anne. Great to be with you as always. <laughs> Thanks so much. So I was really excited for us to have a conversation. I've actually wanted to invite you on the podcast for a bit, but I also wanted to have a, another read of your book, which I read last summer after first discovering Bento. And I wanted to start by asking you about the very candid, the very honest introduction that you had to the book, which I thought was very, it was wonderfully contextual. It felt very far from, from the perception that I had of you since we've gotten to know each other over the past few months. So I wanted to find out from you a little bit more about who you were when you were a kid and, and what your environment was like when, when you were growing up. Sure. I mean, it makes me immediately want to know what your perception of me was, but maybe we'll get to, we'll get to that later. <laughs> we can get um, to that too. Yeah. So I, um, my name is Yancy. I, uh, that is my real name. Um, and uh, I'm 42 years old and grew up in the United States, but in the South, in Southern Virginia, border Virginia, West Virginia. I grew up mainly on a farm. And my parents divorced when I was three. My dad was a traveling waterbed salesman. My mom was a secretary. And um, they split when I was about three. And then 
my mom became Christian and my, the rest of my childhood was as an evangelical Christian with a man she remarried. And, and I was living in the farm and in, in the middle of nowhere, going to very rural schools where I very much did not fit in and really struggled for, you know, until I was able to leave. And yeah, it was just a country boy. It was just a country boy. But, you know, what was interesting was that I loved books and I loved culture. And so I had a great yearning for the world just because I read absolutely everything I could find. I loved music, listened to anything I could find. Um, you know, both my parents are very worldly, not, don't, didn't graduate from college at that time, but like had taste. But yeah, I just, I was this boy in the middle of nowhere dreaming of the larger world and, and living in a place where I really, no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't fit in. I think that in the way that I reread it, I, I must have really blanked on that last year. I think that one of the reasons selfishly I was drawn to this is that <laughs> I grew up in rural Switzerland in the middle of nowhere. And um, in despite the fact that my family wasn't particularly evangelical Christian, we did get a couple of years of a taste of that with my brother. And for sure, very much like you, I did not fit in at all. I um, So I'd love for, to find out what were you reading and what were you listening to? Yeah, because I, I feel like a lot of our early readings can sort of define a lot of the world that we want to explore and, and potentially the path beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I went to a Christian school through fifth grade. So that's through age 11 or so. And the first half of the day at this Christian school, and this was for all students together, kindergarten through high school, uh, the first half of the day was Bible study. And, um, and so we would, be, we would have to break down and analyze Bible verses, memorize them, understand them. And so I think of that as being a first reading kind of experience that I think still influences me in all kinds of ways that I probably am barely aware of. And then once I was reading on my own, you know, I was just such a, such an excited reader. I remember reading every single Hardy Boys book multiple times, every Nancy Drew book multiple times, you know, Roald Dahl, Matilda was probably my favorite book. And yeah, I just read everything. I remember reading To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, maybe fourth grade. That was very affecting. And I just, I would just go to the library and just read everything I could. And it was just, my, my mom talks about how her image of me as a kid was just a book in front of my face, <laughs> like the top of my head above it. That's just what I loved. It's just fun. And, um, and musically, my dad is a musician and so is my mom too, but my dad was played in bands and was quite serious about it. The band would practice in the house and I even played in a band with my dad briefly. And he had played initially bluegrass and country music and country rock because we're in the South. And um, I didn't really like that music, but it's what I was surrounded by. You know, I loved the Beatles and the Beach Boys and then, you know, and then Nirvana happened. And then I went, you know, deep into alternative and then indie rock and then punk and hardcore. And, you know, that was a gateway drug to, really a life that has been devoted to music. But, you know, from, from the age of, I think, five or six, my father started teaching me how to play guitar. And I was always told, like, you are going to be a musician. Uh, I think oh. that was kind of the profession my father um, wanted for me. 
yeah, so just music was very, very present. And so my first, my very first job, um, first few jobs combined these things where I, I made a living writing about music. And, you know, that was great because I got to put, you know, what had become a very deep knowledge of a lot of things, you know, because I just, my reading attack that I brought, I brought that to music and I would buy encycl- music encyclopedias and I would just read them front to cover repeatedly just to learn about every artist. Because then it's like the, how to hear someone or, or how to discover something you've never heard about before was the big challenge. And so I just read everything I could just looking for, you know, a name I hadn't seen before. And then I would try to, you know, how could I hear them? And so, yeah, that was, you know, just bringing those things together um, was very much a natural culmination of really what a lot of my childhood and a lot of my energy has always been devoted to. Mm. I'd love to know at which point did you decide that you wanted to become a writer? It was, it was, um, I don't think I decided. I think I was. I remember in, I believe it was fourth grade, I started writing a series of science fiction stories and all these composition books. There's like many of them. They're all about the same set of characters. Um, so that was something that was just fun. You know, I loved doing that. And, you know, I even remember in sixth grade, I was going to a public school. So no longer a Christian school. Now, you know, school with a lot of kids. And this is in the very rural area. And this is when I started getting bullied and, and beat up a fair amount. And one morning while I was waiting for the school bus, a the bottom of my driveway, I saw a deer come sort of stumbling out of the woods across the street. And then uh, it fell down in the ditch across the road from me. It had been shot and it fell down like tangled in the barbed wire. And I went to it while I was waiting for the school bus and just watched this deer die, you know, and just like touched it, tried to like comfort it, be there, cried. And then didn't the hunter didn't show up while I was there. The school bus came and then I went to school. And in the school bus, on the way to school, I wrote a poem about it. I wrote a poem about it. So that just shows like my where my instincts were of like what I did with things. But I wrote a poem about it that ended up sharing with the teacher. Then they had me like read out to the school the next day, something, something I can vaguely remember it, but it was like, I ended up reading, reading this poem I'd written. But, but so just the point of that is to say that like, you know, here I had a pretty significant moment of being with something as it's dying. And my immediate response is to turn it into, you know, a piece of writing to try to reflect on it in that way. So I think that that, that was not premeditated. That was not like I'm trying to get uh, some likes on Instagram. You know, this is, this is just a boy alone uh, in the country. And that's what I did. So I, I think a bit that's, that's just always been there. That's, that's amazing. So yeah, your first job in New York, by the time you made it to New York, <laughs> was to work for The Village Voice. With to me, as someone who came to New York, I think I was, the first time I went, I was 14. And then I came back, I was maybe 21, 22. It sounds like the dream. Like the young me is majorly jealous of your, your first job. Just tell me a little bit about it. And was it as much fun as I'm making it up in my head? Definitely not as much fun. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that, you know, the Village Voice was my first, it was a, there were freelance writing gigs. So I didn't have a full-time job there, but I had been writing for Pitchfork and a few other places. And I, my day job was in a radio news provider that's now Clear Channel. 
in the United States. And my job was to rewrite news stories so that they could be little 15 second news blurbs, news briefs that a DJ would read out on the air. And my job was to, yeah, my job was to rewrite entertainment news, entertainment and music news, according to every genre, country, hip hop, pop, you know, rock. And yeah, and turn those into little things DJs could read every day. And so I did that for, for three years. And it was excellent. It was excellent. It was a great job. One of the music encyclopedias that I had studied and memorized, when I ended up starting working there, I find out the person who created that was like the editor-in-chief of the whole thing. Yeah, he became a great mentor to this day, Ira Robbins, Trouser Press. Um, Amazing. What's the name of the encyclopedia? uh, The Trouser Press Record Guide. It's fantastic. Fantastic. And so, but so I had this day job, but I, I was, I was going to see a lot of shows and this is New York in early 2000s. So this is, you know, the strokes are about to happen. The white stripes are about to happen. It's about to be that kind of moment. And New York had, you know, the strokes, yeah, 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 it's a lot of things. And I was a member of some online music communities and one of which had, which is still around, has a lot of amazing great writers and it was very small. And one of the people in it was the editor-in-chief of the Village Voice music section, the head of the Village Voice music section. And so uh, one day I just like sent him a piece on spec where I wrote a review of an album I liked and physically mailed it to him because this is how you would do things along with like a little letter about me. And, you know, uh, a few weeks later, I get a phone call saying, hey, we're running the piece. You know, it's, it's going up next week. This was Chuck Eddy is his name. A wonderful person. You know, this is going up next week. You know, give me your, give me your address. We'll send you your check. You know, you're getting 75 bucks. And that was, yeah. And so then I started writing more regularly for The Voice. And then I, uh, that turned into, there were several years where I was a full-time music writer, music journalist, very poorly paid, you know, never making more than $30,000 a year. And that's even with having like a full-time editorial job at times too. But I was in New York. I was going to see shows. I was friends with bands. I was doing my dream. And I wasn't the best person at it by any stretch. Other people were much better connected. And, but I had a weird name. And, and I was just, you know, I was excited. And at the same time I was doing this, I was also blogging every day. So that also kept you know, just kept a writing regimen, kept a bit of a profile, kept a conversation with other music writers. And Mm. this this is all like 2000 to 2005, something like that. That's so interesting. I, I find it fascinating to hear the early, (laughs) the early beginnings of of people's careers. So you famously co-founded and then later on became CEO of Kickstarter, which you know, is a company that essentially defined a new concept in the world that is crowdfunding. And it's something that everyone is now really familiar with. So I would love for you to tell me what you learned about the world of ideas and how ideas come to life from your experience over the course of your career there. That's a nice nice question. Um, well, before, so the, it was my, my friend and, and co-founder, Perry Chen, who first had the idea for Kickstarter. And he had had the idea about three or four years before we had met. He had wanted to throw a concert in New Orleans and didn't have the money to do it, but had the idea of what if he proposed the idea for the concert online, people put up their credit cards, but no one is charged unless the show sells out. And that way he wouldn't have to 
decide whether or not to front the money, the public together could. But you know, the, he didn't know what to do with that idea. He wasn't a technical person. And so we met in 2005 and, and started talking about it and dreaming about it and imagining what it could be. And up until that point, I'd never been involved in anything that was, and neither, and neither had he, that was like uh, an entrepreneurial, a purely entrepreneurial effort or like really putting a new idea of this caliber into the world. And so one thing I learned was that it's really hard to explain new things to people. We had years, you know, it was, it was four years in between our starting to collaborate and the site launching. And during those years, we were working diligently on it. And a lot of that was speaking to artists and creative people and trying to explain the idea. And trying to explain a totally new concept without anything to point to, without a visual, without, without clear analogs was extremely difficult. And we ended up finding a way to explain it. And it really came from just iteration of talking to someone and being able to see the moment in which you bored them or which you confuse them and just realizing this is not the right way to talk about this. And what the end lesson of that ended up being was that you really just can only introduce maybe one new idea at a time. So, you know, so Kickstarter needed to be about a lot of people coming together to, to fund a, a creative thing. Now there's a lot of like smaller pieces of that, that we could talk about or like that were important or whatever. It's other ideas we had, but we ended up stripping away because we're just like that. We think it might be too complicated. We've already seen just people getting this model of a conditional purchase. Even that is like a tough concept. So just needs to be as simple as possible. So a real, a real clear takeaway was that it would, needed to be as simple as possible. And then I saw how during the first two years that Kickstarter existed in the world, basically every Kickstarter project video is someone explaining to their community how Kickstarter works in using skits, using animations, using a simple explanation. And it really took all of those iterations of probably 5,000 people explaining the model in their own words and doing how many countless conversations one-on-one at these funding parties and launch parties and things. You know, I think that's what it took for it to become something that people really understood. So, you know, so how did it spread? It spread because the idea was simple. It spread because other people were incentivized to tell the story in their own words. And yeah, and, I, and then other people were then incentivized to share that person's story in their own words. And so there was this, there was just, we knew that there was a built-in virality to the idea that people would want to share their projects. But I think it also really helped for making the idea something that became very ubiquitous. And so what I ended up seeing in this course of this like five-year span was how something that seemed totally speculative and people were extremely skeptical of for that to go to so normal, you barely even think about it. And if you were to say to that person, you were really skeptical of this five years ago, they would deny it and they would feel completely disconnected from that truth. And so the the feeling I had from seeing that was one of amazement. And then a secondary feeling I had was one of alarm because I thought, wait, this is happening with everything, isn't it? This wasn't a special case. This is everything around me is like this. And 
I was such a, you know, raised, raised within the comfort of my society that I, I still in my mind in those, like that first year of Kickstarter, I think a part of me was waiting for like the team of five people that showed up with their clipboards to like make sure it was okay for us to exist. Like I had still some sense of there's a permission structure like that. And I really experienced firsthand how not true that was and how the world kind of rearranged itself around, you know, how this idea spread. And that, that was just a very, you know, I'm sure someone told me maybe before that's how things worked, but I certainly have never felt it or seen it until that experience. So recently I reread the book. I don't know whether you've seen or you've heard of it or or read it, The Art of Possibility um, by Benjamin and Ross Zander. And there's one chapter that's called It's All Invented. (laughs) And when I read you, I thought there was an echo to a quote that I'm going to read. You said, the truth is that everything is made up. The same way Kickstarter was made up. Some people think something and try to bring it into existence. If other people start believing in this idea, it becomes real. And now you then had, how long did you stay Kickstarter? Over 10 years, right? Yeah, 12 years. 12 years. So then you had 12 years of experience of seeing other people's ideas come to life. And I mean, this must be, I I can't even imagine what you end up doing (laughs) with this kind of knowledge. Tell me what it was like for you to work with these artists and creatives. It's interesting to reflect on because uh, yeah, I was always the community person, the community focused person, the, the person who was friends with the creators, who sought people out, who looked at every project, probably the first 10,000 projects, I would guess I looked at all of. Um, and so I really like, I'm motivated, I'm most motivated by the creative project part of Kickstarter. Like that's the most interesting part, you know, the business. I side with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the business part, I'm like, cool. You know, uh, uh, these are things that have to exist for this other part to work well. So I'm like, I really fan out on those things. I've been fortunate to have a front row seat in a lot of different kinds of creative processes with a lot of different types of artists and creative people. And through that, you learn different ways of thinking, you, you know, you get to watch how someone else deals with the problem, you know, you, you just get to be in a place of constant sort of learning mode. Um, and you get to meet your heroes and have great conversations with your heroes. But what's also true, like if I think about all those feelings, those feelings encompass like the first four years. And then if I think about the first four years we were live. Um, so then I, if I think about like the next four years, which are the years I was CEO, I felt extremely disconnected from the, that creator experience. Like I knew it was happening. I still talked to creators. I still met with creators. But so much of my experience was about the organization, about managing a reputation, about staff. And so the connection to the product definitely, you know, for, for me just became more distant because my, my day-to-day reality was no longer the wider creative universe, it was uh, the operational and executional and strategic challenges of operating a business that serves that, which makes all kinds of sense. But just it just makes me think that, yeah, I, I felt a much greater connection to what was happening on the ground early on. And just last week, I saw 
somewhere earlier this week, maybe I saw someone tweet something about how their project was like the 20th most funded of all time. And they're like, and that's out of 500,000 Kickstarter projects. And I thought, is that 500,000? Is that true? And so I went to the stats page, Kickstarter slash help slash stats to look at the live numbers. And yeah, it's like 530,000 projects that have launched. Not all have been funded, about 40% are funded. That's huge. So if I think about 500,000 people, a lot of people are repeat creators, but say 500,000 ideas took the chance at existence through this tool, I felt really, I felt really great about that. I thought, wow, what a, you know, this is not a number I would think to celebrate, but this really does in a way feel like maybe the number to celebrate, just people be feeling empowered to take their shot. Um, and so, I don't know, so seeing that little stat the other day, it just made me sort of regrounded me in what, and what it really is about. So, you know, while I was there full-time, I had periods of feeling very connected in periods where there's just other stuff that was more in the forefront of, of my experience. But you were an ideas enabler, essentially, and you had a front row seat to understand how ideas should be presented, communicated, potentially can be manifested, which, you know, really feels very fitted to where we are in our bento groups, by the way, about manifesting ideas. <laughs> so that's why I, I felt very connected to this. Hmm. So I first heard you on the James Altucher show, and I really wanted to re-listen to it this week, but I, I really did not have time. I love context. I find that context really helps everyone sort of place things. You explain in, in the introduction of your book about how you were walking around in New York with your family and you read an article about how China was making plans for the um, something to happen in 2050. And at the time, the US government could not agree to pay to fit the bill <laughs> for the nation that same month. And that was a, a trigger for you to think about the future. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was, I mean, as you put it, it was just a moment on the street of seeing a headline at the moment the U.S. was locked in another political slog fight. And, and that was a moment that just really, I feel like it kind of extended my horizon line you know, I knew that 2050 existed, but here I was finding out that to whatever degree it's propaganda, which it almost certainly is to some degree, but that here are people that are, you know, they have a, 2050 is on their horizon and they have a path that's fairly laid out to get there. And again, maybe an obvious uh, observation um, that other people would already be thinking about, but it just... I was just a feeling I, I just couldn't stop thinking about and thinking about it for myself personally, but more generally just thinking about it for like this broader journey that we're all on, you know, of society itself, like to what degree are we thinking in this way and what happens when we do and what are ways that we might. And so, it, you know, that I, I saw that headline during a period where I was also reading and thinking a lot about the history of value and the self. I was very interested in these two topics. Um, part of it was thinking about in Wealth of Nations, which I just read, an abridged version of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. And he talks about the power of self-interest and how people are motivated by their own desires and needs. 
Um, and that felt very true to me. But it just struck me that, like, wh- how do we define self? You know, how do we define where we start and stop? And I was reading philosophy and trying to just trying to get a, a history of that idea, which is actually something I'm going even deeper into at, at the moment for a different project. And at the same time, I was also doing reading about value, like how have we thought about how value is ascribed and found a number of interesting books and, and texts on that. And so I was in this period of just being using my reading power, my curiosity to just like, I want to understand something. And I, and I think I was interested in that, or I know I was interested because it was, I had stepped down as the CEO of Kickstarter about four or five months before. Um, the last four years of my time at Kickstarter had been, a lot of it focused on Kickstarter becoming a public benefit corporation. So reclassifying away from being a traditional for-profit company and instead becoming a company that's legally required to produce a positive public benefit for society. And so, you know, I saw that choice by us as being an important one and one that I feel like should become the norm. But I want to understand, like, how is it that financial value has been ascribed, you know, the gold standard of value? What, you know, there's other kinds of things that Kickstarter is trying to manifest, other values, creative values, community values, values of freedom and liberty for artists. Aren't those values also worth a business or a group of people collaborating to grow? And so I just I was just looking for kind of what is the philosophical underpinnings of kind of the ground that we're standing on right now? How do we get to this place of understanding? And that, you know, that research and that thinking ended up, you know, being a foundation for the book, This Could Be Our Future. And I think that that 2050 prompt really led me to think about this question of, in the next 30 years, in the next 70 years, in what ways might these things evolve? You know, in what ways might the self evolve? How has it even evolved in my life? You know, what have I seen about where I define the limits of myself as an individual versus how I interact with others. And, and also to say that the focus on financial value has been a, a, a dominant thing in society for at least 100 years. But in a world of climate change or in a world of a lot more digital values and sensors, that also seems like something that's changing. So what are ways that we can understand this? So I, I, I have been curious about these areas. I, I find this headline and I just sort of felt like and I had to return to it to really find it later, but I felt like there's this, this sort of undefined space that opened up for me that I just became intensely curious about and wanted to understand. I was listening earlier today to an abridged version of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, whatever it's called, <laughs> Stephen Covey. And I think I'm on number yeah. four and number five something that's very bento-like. He says, effective people start with the end goal in mind. And so I feel like that extension of your timeline by looking at 2050, or whenever we do start at looking at what are the potential goals that, are, that we can set for ourselves, then like you said, we can build a plan or a roadmap towards that. But if we just advance working from day to day, what's possible, Right. Well, yeah, then, then, you're, then you're working and iterating on the existing paradigm, which is something you have to do, but you're not doing it with any destination. So yeah, I think, that, I think it, is, it was very helpful because 
you know, my experience with Kickstarter said this model of the PDC feels like an improvement. Um, you know, it's still challenging. This should be more normal, but also feeling like, you know, you can't force companies to do that. And that there's like a, there's something deeper here. You know, what is it that made this an obvious choice for us? How could other people, regardless of their, no matter what they thought or believed, how could they similarly have a feeling of like, you know what it's, what it's really about? You know, it's about this. And how, how could people come to that honestly? So I think that was, a, that was something I, 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 was, I was just thinking about. And, and, and the thing that emerged, you know, the bento, you know, that came, I was sort of halfway through writing this book. I'd written sort of all about like the recent history and then the second half of the book was about here's here's my better way. And I knew the better way was about expansion of value and self. I'd done all this research. I knew the, the philosophers I was going to cite. But what I lacked was what's the what's the metaphor? The metaphor I was using at the time was the idea that there was like thin and thick value, a thin and thick self. I had this like thin, thick metaphor. I have a lot of mood boards around thin and thick. Uh-huh. Uh, but I knew that wasn't. It wasn't sticky enough, wasn't good enough. And, and then one day I was, I reached the halfway point of the book and I had built into my schedule a month break. And I put this month break in and I'd said, during that month, I'm going to do zero writing because I've been working, you know, eight hours a day, every day on, on this for many months. I was going to do zero writing and I didn't have my metaphor yet, but I thought I'm just going to like, I'm just going to be, and it's going to happen. That's what I told myself. I'm just going to be and it's going to happen. And so I spent like the first week reading other things, you know, doing more research. And the second week, I thought, I'm just going to try working on paper. I'm not letting myself write. I'm not doing the same grind, but I just like want to work on paper. And I spent a day trying to storyboard my book. I just had this idea. What if I storyboarded it? You know, so here's the first chapter. And I kind of did each one. And then I got to this, you know, the big question, how am I explaining my idea? And as I tried to explain what it was I was impacting, I thought, well, you know, the way we tend to picture self-interest now is as like the hockey stick graph, you know, a, a chart where a line just going to the moon. So I drew that on a piece of paper and, you know, labeled the x-axis time and labeled the y-axis because of the things I've been thinking about self-interest. And I thought, okay, so this is like the y is your self-interest. And as I did that, I just had this instinct to try extending the lines of both these axes. And suddenly this picture that had been like this big hockey stick graph instead was just like this big open expanse with like a tiny little up arrow in the bottom left corner and the rest of it just totally open. And that was the moment where I looked at it and thought, oh, this is, this is that undefined space. This is that, this is that path to 2050. This is all these things. This, this is what that is. I quickly just drew two lines to turn it into a two by two where I had these four boxes. And the language wasn't exactly this at the start. It was slightly different, but it was like I had now me um, with the bottom left where hockey stick graphs live, you know, what I want to need right now. But in the bottom right was future me, that person I am trying to become, want to become. And the top left uh, is now us. So as my self-interest extends and grows, so do my responsibilities for other people. And then in the top right, future us, so thinking about the next generation. And, you know, all this, this flash of like drawing the self-interest chart to that was probably like maybe three minutes, you know? And, and after I drew that, 
I was like looking at it and thinking about it and it really felt, it felt true to me. It felt, yeah, it felt real. And I wrote a simple description next to it that just said, beyond near-term orientation. I just like wanted to label this idea in my notebook. Yeah, beyond near-term orientation. That's like, this was a simple tool to help you see beyond your near-term. And as I looked at beyond near-term orientation, I saw that the first letters made an acronym for bento. And I had recently read a book about bento boxes and had recently read about Harahachibu, this idea that uh, a Japanese meal is trying to make you 80% full to make room for tomorrow. And the bento was just such a, you know, it was like destined. This was, this is exactly what this is. This is exactly what this is. And so I looked at that and thought, this is a bento. This is a bento. And that later that same day, a couple hours later, I like kept noodling on it. I have a whole notebook of like different ways I tried to take it. But at the end of that afternoon, I made a video. Um, where I drew it on a piece of paper, shot it with my phone and had myself narrate it because I thought I just want to record this idea. Um, and yeah, I, I liked it. My wife really liked it. She thought it was awesome. My book editor, when I shared it with her, she was like, this was way more than I was expecting <laughs> for a year metaphor. But, um, but I wasn't totally sure. And so I, I reached out to a friend of mine. I was living in LA who had who hosted salons in her home often. And I asked her if I could do an event because I wanted to share an idea. And so she invited about 30 people who I didn't know into her house. And I stood in front of them and I gave a talk. And then I showed them the little video I'd made of the bento, the video of me explaining, because I couldn't stand there and explain it. And, um, and I just watched people's faces as they watched the video. And then I, I invited them to ask questions. And I just wanted to see what would happen. And I could see by people's faces that it was a real aha realization. And, and I could tell the, the questions people asked. I have, a, I have an audio recording of this somewhere, but like even in the first few questions, it made me see the bento so differently because people were seeing things of themselves in this form. And we're asking questions from that perspective. And of course, I'm seeing it from my perspective, which is totally different. And so in that very first conversation, it is becoming an even more sort of rounded three-dimensional space because I'm hearing from other people the meaning that it has for them. And so I left that event feeling as certain as I could for having invented a totally made-up thing, that, it, that, there, that there was something here, that there was something here. And um, it was sort of undercut at the end, at the very end, I'd forgotten about this, at the very end, this very macho guy came up and slapped me on the back and said, you got some balls, kid. Which is like, <laughs> I mean, the worst thing someone could have said as I was leaving. Um, but yeah, but I needed that moment of other people because otherwise I was just, you know, how do I know I'm not talking to myself? And so that, that was such a confidence boost. You know, I, I finished the book in the next three or four months and and I really continued from that point on doing, making a point of doing living room talks where I taught people the bento. And a lot of it, I would, I would bring a whiteboard or a, a, a big sketch pad, and I would make people's bentos for them. I would ask them questions. We'd build it. We'd ask a question in front of everybody. People would pair up. Um, and all that was just happening from just me being in people's living rooms in LA and just wanting to, just wanting to test it out. And everything I would, I would label the start the very first one was called experiment number one. Next one was experiment number two. And I told people like, 
you are here as an experiment. I don't know what this is going to do for you, but I'm just trying something. Thank you for participating. And through that, just sort of iterated and listened. And uh, yeah, and a lot of the form and structure that it is today came out of those initial explorations. That's really wonderful. So when did the book come out? I forgot to ask you. October 29th, 2019. Okay. And so when did you start, when did you take Bento online? I, I, I did a you know pretty intense book tour that I was still in the midst of in March when COVID happened. Okay. And during that, I would, like when I would fly to cities, I would do living room talks as well as more formal things. But the first online Bento came in April. So it was about a month into lockdown. and. Back in the fall, my wife and I had started a weekly ritual together where we would draw a blank bento. So the four boxes, now me, future me, now us, future us. And we would make a to-do list for the week using those forms. So we would sit down together. We go, all right, what are the now me things to do this week? Which is like errands, you know, go to the bank, do these things for work. Like here's the you know, big stuff happening this week. Then you'd ask now us, what should I do this week? And your now us would tell you, Hey, here's this friend you should talk to. Oh, make sure you call this person back. Oh, hey, as a partner, know that you know your wife is needing this this week. And you're sort of talking to yourself. Uh, you ask your future me, what should I do this week? And future me is a voice you had to learn to listen to. But future me is you know, the person you hope you become. And that person ended up, for me, gives me a lot of like mantra type stuff. You know, <laughs> be chill, relax. <laughs> it's going to be all right. It doesn't all happen to happen at once. You know, and then future us, future us is future us is maybe is the hardest, but maybe my favorite because future us invites you to say, what can you practically and tangibly do with your time that will positively impact a next generation? Mm. And I'm a parent. So there's a fair amount there that I can do as a parent, but there's also a lot that comes up there around volunteering, giving time or money, learning about something and making space for that. And so my wife and I were just using this as like, just what we did to organize our weeks. And it became a to-do list and just powerful, really powerful. And so when COVID happened in April, I thought maybe I'll just do that on Zoom. You know, we'll just try. And so I sent out an email to my newsletter saying, here's an experiment. Once again, always using the experiment language. And that first one, you know, 30 people showed up, probably 20 of whom are still come frequently. And, and every week since then, it's happened, you know, since since April. So it's like, 60, 60 some straight weeks of people coming together to, you know, the core function is to use this as a tool to, to plan their weeks, to ground their time. But it's also turned into a community and space to explore and other things as well. Mm -hmm. It started for me because it was just a useful way to use my time. And, and I love how quick it is. You know, making my bento is like 10 minutes at most, five minutes. It's like, but it's a high value, five minutes. That just became a, another way to, to manifest the utility of this idea and to put it in people's hands. I, I'm still surprised that I signed up to join you guys because I think I did my first one was is end of June um, 2020. And I was also very surprised that there were um, dyads, like breakout groups. And I was like, damn. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm on Zoom with strangers <laughs> and now it's intimate. And actually one of them is, is in our mentor group today. It's Daniel. How did you decide to, to bridge this format to make it like an hour long weekly thing? Where, where did that come from? I'd love to know. Experimenting. I mean, all the first 
I'd say the first 12 were all 20 minutes. I had a 20 minute clock in front of me. Oh, wow. And I would try to, cause I, the C, the former CEO in me hates, hates being in meetings that don't end when they should. So I was very focused on that. But then I just started using it as a space to think even more about experimentation. And I started designing things for people to do together. You know, what if we all imagined this? What if we tried this? What if we role play this? And I don't, to me, that was just fun. Like that was me being an artist and being a writer. And, and once again, when we did these things, people loved them. It was different. It's like, whoa, I, got, I was just, I spent the last hour pretending I was the CEO of Facebook. Like what? You know, and th- that's like an experience I designed for people. And so things like that were just, for me, it was fun. And, and I was just getting the feedback in the room of seeing other people enjoying it, getting something out of it. And so that was just, you know, it's all kind of in this place of, you could think of the core, the underlying motivations of everything is expanding how people see where their selves are, where they end, where they begin and end, change that, push that, create space for people to explore that. And also create space for people to explore the idea that the the spectrum of value is something larger than they think than uh, a life solely in pursuit of money, as we all know, is very thin and fragile. But it's possible to become even more clear about the values that are important to you and to you know, be a part of a community or use your life in a way to grow those things. In addition to making sure that, you know, you have enough money you need to to survive and, and to feel secure. And so, you know, all of these experiments and exercise and all the times together were always meant to open up that space for people. And, and what's happens in the community is, and what I've learned over time is that people, people learn from each other, right? People are inspired by each other. People, you know, I take a big step forward and other people come with me because we're just together. And there are a number of people, just the other day I was writing down, like, what are some of the case studies of the Bento Society? And there are several people who I thought about who have had major leaps and gains in their lives and who I know were inspired by seeing other people in the community, like, take a bold step, you know? And I, and I heard from people saying that, oh, being, seeing so many other people trying to do something I felt like, why am I not trying to do something? And I did. And, and now here I am. As these experiments kept going and as people kept joining and as it became stickier, there was just a lot of positive feedback that said, this is valuable. This is not about you. The bento is a good idea, but this is about all these things that are happening as a result of them. I would love to see if you remember, you did a great role play exercise last year that we did in the first season of bento groups. Do you remember which one it was? Because I remember there was the voice. Yeah, the voices. The voices, the voice of the past, the voice of the ancestors. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And I remember that I wasn't in the right group, but there was someone who was very powerful <laughs> with yes, the voices yes, of the ancestors. Keisha. Yes, yes. Keisha. Do you mind um, telling our uh, listeners what that was like? Because it was such a powerful, interesting exercise. Yeah, this is this is an exercise I stole from my wife, who's also congratulations. Uh, yeah, yeah, who's also a, a great designer. Yeah, so you get a group of four people, and you have they're each assigned roles. One is a voice of commitment, and they voice something that they want to do in their lives. And then another person then speaks next, and they are they are the voice of doubt. So they will immediately say out loud all the things you say in your head when you're trying to talk yourself down. You know, you're not good enough. You you always start things that fail. Do you really? 
want to, you know, they're going to laugh at you or whatever. And someone actually says those things out loud and you have to sit there and hear it. Uh, The next person that speaks is the voice of ancestors. And this is someone instructed to speak as the past generations of this person, you know, speak of what they have already fulfilled by being here put them in a larger context. And that person then is meant to speak extemporaneously to that addressing the voice of imminent. And finally is the voice of possibility, which is a uh, person who just highlights, you know, all that could happen. And so this like simple process happens in just five minutes. Someone says something they're committed to. Someone else speaks a doubtful voice. Someone else speaks an ancient voice. Someone else speaks like a, here's what could be voice. And what's interesting is just through that, indirect dialogue, you kind of go through the whole emotional journey that we experience in our heads about anything we try to do to where by the end, you're like, oh man, like I need a break. Like you really do go through that process of, oh my God, I'm terrible. You know, I'll never be good enough. And you, you find your way out. And just that exposure and that feeling of embodiment and that ability to like dialogue with those feelings is yeah it's like an accelerant it's 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 an emotional accelerant and so yeah that's a good example of the kind of thing that we do and (laughs) uh, and there's one you know there's one in the second season of bento groups where i wrote a script for people to pretend they're at davos and to represent all the major yeah governments and climate activists and wall street and Oh yeah, I remember that very well because you were the voice. <laughs> you were the voice of the next generation. It was you and Michelle being sixteen, yeah. right? You were yeah. you were really unruly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that you know, but again, it's another chance. I'm, I'm a very much, very much a believer in embodiment. At the point of like those exercises, those were two weeks of exercise we follow, but it's to put us in a place of simulating group disagreement, to put us in a place of trying to resolve something that feels unresolvable. And what's wild is that that ended up being quite a, quite an emotionally charged experience for a number of groups. Several groups have had people that had to like apologize to everyone afterwards because they're like, I got too into it. And I heard from a lot of groups that, you know, once they were encouraged to go into those different roles in the same way I became an unruly teenager, people really embodied them to a degree that, you know, it was at times almost problematic but the experience is designed to then help you unwind that into a resolution. Um, So again, this is just an experiment having fun. And the core goal is to, is to give people that opportunity to expand themselves, explore these other lenses, you know, have this gain this power of, 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 you know, seeing their lives from different angles and, and having the tools to navigate these kinds of situations. And, you know, to me, the people that have those kinds of social and strategic skills are, you know, are, are people who can affect change and, and who can get where they want to go. So let's go back to the book for a second. You called it, This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. And so you talk about measuring value outside of the society's long-term best interest. And I wanted to ask you, what does a more generous world look like to you? And what's the ideal scene for 2050? Well, I think that 
Number one, I think that the world is more generous than we give it credit for. Mm -hmm. And I feel lucky to be alive when I'm alive. And, and I think the long journey that humanity has made to this point is tremendously commendable. And there's a, there's a pessimism you get, especially on progressives or the left that like the world would be great if it weren't for human beings. Um, and (laughs) there is true that there's the, there's the Moloch in human beings. There's the, the greed and selfishness that is absolutely there, but that often works to our advantage too. But that I don't, you know, I, 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 I don't have a fundamentally bad story about people or, or the world. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I lost my train of thought. What was your, what was the question? It was in- <laughs> I, was, I was wondering what's, what's a more generous world? Oh yeah, and what's also, a more generous world? And so if we project into the 2050 that you've been exploring since you started this process, what does the ideal scene look like? And yeah, I know so, that it's yours, so it's, you know, but I just love the idea of, of, of project, projecting ourselves in there. To me, a more generous world, it's not saying reaching a state of like absolute righteousness. It's just saying more, more than where we are now. But I think that it's simply a matter of self-understanding and self-perception. Like when I first made the bento, I had this thought of who is us? As I think about like now us, does now us, does that include every living thing on the planet? Does that include my sworn enemy? Like, who is my us? And there is definitely the the case to be made. And I'm very open to the case that yes, all those things should be our us, that 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 is the way to behave. But I also don't believe that that is an honest or reasonable expectation to put on somebody. And that truly what is like an honest and appropriate expectation is to say, our us are the people that we have some cause to have an emotional feeling about people that we're responsible for or, you know, who care about us. And to me, a more generous world is one where, where we're even just more aware of those people and their needs and where we are simply more aware of our future selves and our future collective selves. And that, you know, to date, we kind of operate with a passive awareness of the world where we see the next 48 hours or even the next week fairly clearly. But beyond that, or even beyond our own personal needs, it becomes much cloudier. And so uh, to me, a more generous world is one where people agree that there is a collective interest that they are a part of, that they are bound to, and where people see themselves as connected to a future person or a future set of people. And that, that's just a language and spaces that enter kind of the rational domain of just like how, how people think, how we all understand things. That's like quite obvious. And there's a lot of historical parallels to say that past humans did think more that way, certainly in like an us orientation. Um, So like we're absolutely capable of these kinds of changes. What does that world look like in 2050? To me, that world looks like a a pluralistic world, a world with a lot of different types of people who are working on the things that feel most important to them. And that in the same way that we rely on the biodiversity of an ecosystem to create a balance as it works its way out, I think that that is exactly what we should be hoping for in a society where, say, the survival needs or financial needs are not, are not the single most important thing, um, and where 
you know, say there's a society that's able to provide more of a foundation for its citizens to where these other parts of life, the us, the future could be there. I think that it looks like, you know, it could look like a lot of really small communities, you know, it could look like a world that is more potentially more fragmented. And I think that there are, you know, I mean, I think that uh, there are also reasons to be pessimistic about 2050, where other ways that this could go. I mean, I, I believe that where we are now is people are becoming more group oriented after a century of hyper individualism. The, the internet and the network has made us more group oriented and we're more clan oriented, actually, the way we were in our like ancient times, like 500 AD times, where people would define truth according to what their families or clan defined as truth. In disagreements or arguments, they would side with clan. There wasn't the idea of a clear moral truth or a, a right of law that wasn't as clearly established or understood. And so instead, people opted for localized beliefs and localized loyalties. And that was kind of how the world functioned. And then it, it broke down over the course of, you know, a thousand years until now. But the internet is, is regrouping us again. And it's reclanning us. And it's, it's, it's changing what it means to be an individual. We are no longer defined by our physical selves. Like I, as an individual, I'm defined by my reputation. I'm defined by my networks. I'm defined by algorithmic measurements. I'm defined by interests. I'm defined by the tribes I'm a part of. There's a lot, there's many facets to being an individual. And people are now bringing all of these parts of themselves to the table. And our existing systems and institutions really don't know what to do with it. And they feel quite, you know, mismatched with how people are evolving. And what I see it as is, is we, are, we are turning into tribes again. We're going through some sort of process of that. And the, the phrase I used to think about the space where we are now is post-individualism where we're, we've had this century of the self, as Adam Curtis called it, the 20th century, where advertising taught us we we're all special snowflakes and we learned to you know, love ourselves. And then we reached the point in the beginning of the 21st century where our individualization causes breakdown, causes an inability to cooperate. Um, the externality of climate change becomes something that can't be solved by personal consumer choices. There's a need for a new collective movement that seems impossible according to our mentality of who we are as people. But the internet and phones and COVID have remade really how we relate to each other. And so as I think about the next 30 years, I think we're in a process of forming new kinds of clans and groups online. That will be extremely useful and will accelerate a lot of social change. It will accelerate a lot of knowledge and things like that. But the one thing I keep thinking about, and this is like for a project I'm working on now, but there's a few periods in the past where there have been similar dynamics of now um, and this sort of like groupifying happening. And in these past instances, this normally ultimately leads to war of some kind. The creation of a collective energy leads to the creation of civic groups, which ultimately leads to some forms of nationalism, which ultimately leads to conflict. And so a little bit what I've been thinking about is, you know, is that the digital world? Is that the next 20 years of, you know, the digital world, like heading towards some sort of conflict? But, but so I, I, I personally just believe that we are in a, a moment where humanity is really being reborn by circumstance by circumstance of the network, by circumstance of climate change, by circumstance of COVID. And we are fundamentally changing in different kinds of ways. And as I think about what we're changing to, to me, the, the bento is a map to that space. And it gives us a sense of 
We're not arriving at a place that's totally foreign. We can actually, you know, apply some crude instruments uh, to assess where we are. Certainly, we will get better at this. This is more of the reality that we're moving into. The, this past world where we could all just be now me and only worry about ourselves and nothing else matter clearly doesn't work anymore. And so, to me, the transition is to a reality of a wider spectrum of self and just different social arrangements in all kinds of ways as a result of that. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate that you also very honestly explored the negative potential. So one of the words I want to pick up on that you talked about as to what Ben Token do is the word accelerant. Because I think that Bento is an accelerant is a flammable, feels, feels very true to me. And I really enjoyed the sense of the field of possibilities that we can get if we do spend time to think about future me and future us. Um, the, the one thing that I, I would love to explore with you is the sense of disconnection that I think a lot of us have felt in that sort of individualist era. And as we move into what you, you're calling uh, aptly post-individualism, what are some of the ways that you've managed to bridge that sense of disconnection in, in your own life? Well, you know, I'm in the fight every day <laughs> of, of, for myself and for my attention, um, for sure. You know, I think that the degree to which we are externally defined and validated, especially for always online people, is really hard to underestimate. I think you have to be, I mean, there are obvious things. You have to be selective about the voices you listen to. You have to create space where you don't listen to those voices. You try to listen to yourself. I think for me, a lot of making the weekly bento has been about creating an ongoing dialogue with myself and to where I have my bento right next to me right now to where during my day as I'm sitting at my computer and as social media is prone to pull me into any number of moods or feelings or, you know, feelings of just, you know, being not good enough. I look at my bento and that just regrounds me and, you know, how I define my identity. But there's, you know, there's something interesting because, you know, I'm defining my identity according to a broader picture of myself too. I'm defining my identity according to my relationships. I'm doing it according to who I want to be. It is, it's not disconnected from like how the network and social media makes me feel, but instead of like all of that data being informed by the feed and by algorithms and by metrics and by comparison with others, which is inevitably, I think, what the network brings. Instead, it's, you know, it is a more of a private self. It is more of, you know, I think a lot about the degree to which we express our feelings through social media rather than to ourselves as really interesting. Like we use our feelings to find connections with others, but like even our feelings, we we somehow feel like if we're if we're keeping them to ourselves, we're like not optimizing them fully. You know, there's there's like reputational or or relationship gains to be made by publicly sharing your feelings versus privately sharing them. And so that's that's this challenge of like where we are defined by something larger than just our physical being. We are defined by our footprints, you know, we're defined by all these things. And and I think teenagers especially have a really good sense of this. Like the degree of work and stress people put into their Instagrams, you know, I can't tell you how many times I go to a park and just see a group of teenagers taking pictures of each other over and over. And that's all they do all day. But I don't think that that what they're doing is irrational. 
I think they're trying to strengthen their reputations. They're trying to strengthen their networks when the only tool that seems available for doing that is a product released by Facebook that everyone else is on. That's the tool people will use and we'll use the language and the metrics of that to define our senses of self. So I think there's a lot of truth in the sense of self that comes from Instagram, but I think that that's something that we should personally hold and that we should define according to our own things that we believe are important rather than just kind of blindly opting into a set of assumptions that, you know, really have your self-interest nowhere in them. So I feel like, you know, the, the bridge is to, is to think about the health of your relationships as being a core part of who you are, is to think about your reputation as being a core part of who you are, is to think about legacy being a core part of who you are. But then actually taking the time to think for yourself, well, what do you want those things to be? What do you want those things to be? But that's hard. And I think that's the thing that most people don't do. We're not taught this. It's never talked about when you're in school. It's not encouraged when you're at university. I mean, it's a wonder why, you know, a few of us actually do it at all. Well, people give you all kinds of advice to do this, but, you know, it's often cheap advice. And I think that to some degree, these are things that life prepares you for, makes you ready for. Sure. And I have to believe that advice also is something that's not necessarily that helpful because when it comes from external sources, we tend not to listen. But I, you know, I even think that there is a, a progression of awareness of the bento that happens in life. Like one of the big moments in a child's life, I believe is around nine months, which is when they first become aware that they and their mother are separate. I think of that moment as being their awareness of now me. So then now me comes online for the first time. And then the child, you know, within the next year or two develops that relationship with their parents. They have the sense of us that becomes true. And then the child begins to move out of only the present. They begin to understand that there's a past and a future. I watch this with my own kid as they like, those concepts start to come, but that future me starts to become apparent. And then, you know, I think as you, as a child, like, joins a class, goes to school, sees himself among a generation of other kids, like puts themselves as not an individual, but a part of this larger group of everyone that's in second grade at whatever school, this like future us also starts to come online. And then what happens as we age is that these places become more clear. The challenge of adolescence is us realizing that like this now me and future me are different, right? Like there's this transition we're going to have to go through. That's the same challenge of adulthood. Becoming an adult is like future me and now me, or aging is future me and now me coming together. The degree of your us, the importance of that, often reflects the level of importance of your relationships in your life. And so to some degree, I think these things, there might be ages where these spaces become more predominant or certain experiences that will bring them out. And I think that by the time you are, you know, I was 39 when I came up with the bento, I think probably around then is probably the period for men, I think for women, it's earlier, that those spaces maybe actually become important. You know, you have, you've made some commitments, you're, you know, there's a few things happening. So I think that it's, I think that, that these things become revealed to us over time. And, and so for someone that's younger, you know, they're, they're just looking, they just need a sense that these things exist, like just a hint. They don't need to know everything, but just like, allow me to, yeah, to just see this a little bit more clearly. But the older you get, you really see these things as being true, you know, and you can begin to even understand past situations from this lens. Yeah, the, I would say the spirit of creation, the amount to which we do create our lives. Wonderful. 
I wanted to ask you uh, shortly um, before we do a few quick fire round questions about one particular aspect of the research that I've read or in the idea space that is your blog. Questions that you've asked about what gets measured and what doesn't get measured and why that matters. Would you indulge me in talking about that? Yeah, so I've, I've, held, I've held two roundtables with between them, 25 amazing people, like head research scientists at Pew Research, Columbia law professor, a leader of the Tlingit indigenous tribe, you know, a CEO of a data company, many different practitioners. And I brought together these different voices to have these conversations about what we measure and, and, and what we don't measure. And these come straight from my CEO experience of Seeing that if you're measuring something, it's a lot easier uh, to make progress on it. It's easy to justify making a decision to others. It's a natural language of an organization. And I also came to see through a lot of attempts made to measuring different things that, you know, a lot of the opportunity and challenges that comes with trying to identify other metrics. And to me, the way of evolving the business world is not to like for everyone to get equally woke. It's to create rational, numeric-based targets and ways of understanding what a good decision and what a bad decision is. That because businesses are prone to want to succeed, to perform well, will follow. If they're made well, if they make sense, if they can be demonstrated to have a positive impact, it can create the level of impact they promise, then people will follow them. You know, it's not a political debate when you're getting into it's better for your business when this happens and this is the, the metric that shows you whether or not you're doing that. So to me, ex expressing values in numerical form, there are dangers with it, to be sure. But that is a path by which you can create large-scale behavior change. And you can do it without coercion. You could do it without forcing anybody, without twisting the arms, without disrespecting anyone's beliefs. You could just simply say, there's an outcome that is agreed upon that is better, and this is a, uh, a number by which to do it. So as I think about the, the big wheels turning of, say, the, the world's largest businesses changing how they operate, to me, you're going to have to produce a, a metric or a, a goal that is in their self-interest, but that like, can compete with money. That makes sense. That is compatible with their financial aims. That, that still you know, isn't totally changing the story, but is improving the outcomes. And yeah, the way to get there is through defining what those ideal outcomes are and creating tools that let us get there. So I look at a, a challenge now and one that I see the, the Bento Society, I want to be a, a key voice in, is in applying a lot of like the amazing skills we've developed to analyze and grow financial value and to bring those same sort of tools and skills to growing or protecting social values, or natural values, or you know certain kinds of outcomes, trying to you know protect against the downsides of some of the products we're doing, or elevating carbon as something that's just as ubiquitous as calories, you know CO two emissions being as ubiquitous as calories in in the world around us. So to me, that process happens through, and having done a fair amount of research on this, through a consensus building in a lot of different fields. And coming up with like pretty tight formulas and math and arguments and case studies. And so I think that that is like 
that is a key unsexy part of how the world gets better. Uh, I laugh at that. Yes. <laughs> but it does sound like you're completely right. Final question. I read that you were guided by a great coach at some specific times in your life and you quote him on, on your website called Jerry Colonna. And today you yourself also coach some CEOs and leaders as you do your research and, and write uh, your next project and lead Bento. So I'd love to hear how this experience of, of being coached has informed you in how you lead us in Bento groups as well and, and your approach to the world. Well, yeah, Jerry, Jerry Colonna, author of a book called Reboot and the founder and CEO of a Reboot coaching firm. I was fortunate to work with Jerry for many years and you know, we spoke just a couple weeks ago. And the first benefit of a coach is just you have a place to emotionally process your experiences and being able to do it there means you're not doing it other places. You know, it means you're not, you're not distracting your teammates or whatever, pulling people into your emotional tribulations, which are always there. And, you know, so I think I really in, in a room with Jerry, I think I really matured. And especially in the year, you know, the past four years, I think I've really matured even more. But I think when I'm coaching people, what I think about, you know, when I was, when I was in the seat, when I was a CEO, the conversations that were most meaningful to me were conversations with peers, other people who had the job. And because it's such a specific job and, you know, you want to process it and you want to complain about it, you know, with other people who get it. Right. And those would be conversations that would just, at times would move me to tears just from feeling less isolated with something that was difficult. So that is the main thing I want to give people I work with is just perspective. You know, what I always wanted was someone that could say, yo, this happens, you know, it happens. This situation is probably not going to work out the way you want, but it's okay. Like if you do it, you know, just, just sort of like that, that voice that just lets you know, you're not uniquely broken. You're normal broken. And so I, that's what I want. I, to me, that emotional resonance did a lot. For other people, maybe that's not everything, but for me, that's a lot of it. So I focus on that. And then, you know, and then the thing that I'm able to bring and where I blur the line, Jerry and I have talked a lot about this, but where I, I'm also can be an advisor where people will come with situations that I have been in before. And, you know, what I've learned from Jerry is, and I learned from my clients, they want me to speak up in those moments to say, hey, here's what happened. But to in those moments to say, hey, just to speak from, not as your coach, but just to speak from experience. You know, when, I, when I've been in this, this is how it's been before. And, and so bringing a bit of that, like, you know, more direct advice and an advisement into the conversations at times, not all the time. Predominantly, I just want to make people feel seen, ask good questions. But I think part of also why people come to me is just, you know, the job of being a CEO or founder of a product in a new space, you know, growing fast, it just brings a lot of very specific experiences. So, you know, people I work with now are people who go through similar things and, you know, uh, I love it. Like several of the CEOs I'm working with, their products are doing amazingly, amazingly. And I feel so proud of them. And, you know, the process of, of leadership is it's not particularly celebrated right now, I feel. 
um, leaders just kind of get a lot of shit and not a lot of praise, like praise. It's like, well, you're already rich or you're already doing whatever, whatever. Like we, we, we yada, 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 um, you know, what it means to be a leader, but leadership is extremely difficult and extremely trying and challenging and requires a real emotional and personal resilience that you have to nurture. And so I really, you know, I always want to honor the people who take on that responsibility and who aren't afraid of it and, and who lean into it. And so those are people I want to support and for whom I have great compassion and, and love. That's awesome. Thanks so much. So now moving on to a few questions that I like to ask all of my guests. <laughs> so here's one that I tend to forget every other time, but I'm gonna, I would like to know what kind of um, mindfulness, meditation, or any other rituals do you have in your life that you feel have kept you balanced, particularly in, in hard times? You know, this is probably the most, the bento might be the most ritualistic thing I've ever done. I have like work rituals, how I use my time, you know, Mondays and Fridays, no meetings, every mornings with every morning devoted solely to writing, but exceptions like this. You know, I think that a lot of my grounding just comes from naturally being quite self-reflective and asking myself a lot of questions. And I'm kind of always processing myself, whether I want to or not, but I've learned how to, how to, I'm still learning how to work with myself. You know, I'd say only in the last two years have I found like that time of day where I'm just pushing mud. All my work is like pretty low quality, but I'm just sitting in the Google Doc anyway, or, you know, sitting in my inbox. And I, you know, only recently have I learned at that moment, that's where I get up and just go run in the woods or just go lift some weights and just, you know, uh, just stop, just stop, you know, just, just letting go and letting my body process to the next thing, you know? And, and I think that a lot of my earlier life was spent, especially as a CEO, you know, you're always working. And anytime I wasn't working, I was dealing with anxiety for like, I should be working. And that leads you to really discount time with friends and time with family. And it makes what I now see as the now us space seem valueless. Right. And, and instead, you know, I've just come to see that like, when I do things with family and friends, I am like fulfilling my purpose. I am creating value for myself. I am. It's just, it's a facet of myself and they're all facets. So I think the bento is the most effective thing I've done in terms of self-care. I think otherwise it's just been a naturally neurotic mind and just someone who probably <laughs> learns through reading all the time and just like synthesizing other people's ideas into my own brain. That, so I think the works. bento is as good as I got. I think it's about <laughs> as good as I got. That's awesome. I'd love for you to tell me about an act of kindness that's touched your life. Uh, I'll say the first thing that came to mind, um, which is when I was in uh, 10th grade, I was going to, you know, this rural school where I was really struggling. And then I applied and got into this thing called a governor's school, which is like a magnet school where they picked two kids from each school and, went to school a couple hours away for half the day. But I got into that, um, but then we couldn't afford it. It wasn't a lot of money. It was like $3,000 a, a year or something, but we really didn't have much money at the time, so we couldn't afford it. And my mom's boss, who was a geology professor at a university, paid for it. He paid for my, he paid for my school my first year of college too, this uh, man, Dr. Ribby. And I, you know, as a, as a 15 year old, can you even appreciate what an act of kindness that is? But yeah, he did that. Um, and that, 
mean, that's probably that that has to be, if I think about what all came as a result of that, that has to be one of the most impactful things anyone ever did for me. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, one of my favorite questions is what is your favorite word? Oh, context. What is a word that is your favorite word that you'd be willing to tattoo on yourself for at least a period of time? Well, yeah, maybe if you, I mean, it probably some bento related word, I guess. Um, I mean, there's a thought, I've had a thought of like, do I have to get a bento tattoo at some point? Is that, is that like, are oh, we yeah. Or is it trending <laughs> towards that? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's as close as I would get. Okay, cool. What song best represents you? Um, I have an answer. It's a, it's a piece by uh, a musician, Don Cherry, who's a jazz musician. And he has a piece called Relativity Suite 2, which is, yeah, it's, it's an amazing piece of music. It's multifaceted and has him chanting a lot of interesting things about prayer and it's, it's wild. I'm totally going to check it out. When you were a tiny little kid, what did you want to be as a grown up? A writer, always a writer. Okay. Early. (laughs) What would you say to your youngest self if you could send yourself a message? You're going to do it. What's the best advice you've ever been given? My older self needs to give my current self that advice too. Uh, <laughs> what is the best advice I've ever been given? I, I'm thinking of something my father told me about kissing girls that I'm not going to share, but yeah, some, some fatherly advice. <laughs> some fatherly <laughs> advice as a teenager. That's awesome. What book is next to your bed or is currently on your desk? I have, um, well, this is, a, this is a good question because I have, five books stacked up in front of me that I'm reading all of right now. Good for, um, good for you. I'm, I'm also a multitasking reader. So I'm currently reading The Free World by Louis Menand, which is a history of art and ideas in the 20th century. Super fascinating. I'm reading The Weirdest People in the World by Joseph Heinrich, which is the history of individualism and people in the West. It's incredibly brilliant, like amazing anthropological research that came out last year. I'm reading Priya Parker's The Art of Gathering. I am reading the memoir by Peter Hook from Joy Division called Unknown Pleasures Inside Joy Division. And I'm also reading a book by my former boss, Michael Azarad, called Our Band Could Be Your Life. That's a history of 80s American indie rock. All five of these books are research for a current project, two current projects I'm working on. So these are all these are all like have very specific purposes in my mind. Okay. Do you ever read fiction just to relax? Yeah. 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 I actually spent the last, most of this year reading, um, yeah, reading a lot of fiction, mainly sci-fi, but, oh, also, cool. going, but also going back to, you know, Milan Kundera, who's my, my all-time favorite writer. Oh, I love him. The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Who's one person that you think we should all know about? A politician, a writer, a musician, artist, activist? Uh, I really am inspired by uh, a man named Konosuke Matsushita, who is the founder of Matsushita and Panasonic. He was the first 
founder of an electrical company in Japan in like 1920 when he was a teenager and became one of the most celebrated entrepreneurs in Japanese history. But what makes him amazing is that he just always had this broader purpose of, or this broader view of the purpose of a firm, of a company. And at the time when Japanese companies had a six day work week, he like made his company work less because he said that was the only way to compete. They became a five day work week. And he was always very just willing to, to take the riskier choice because he saw this bigger picture. And he has a book that hugely influenced me called Not for Bread Alone, which is a, just a collection of observations, things he's gone through that for me, you know, he became a, a leadership role model in a way that I, you know, my only leadership role models in the past were like artists, but that he's someone that I think is, has a, has a lot to offer. That's wonderful. And coming to my last question, what brings you happiness? Running in the woods, a great basketball game, being with the people in my life who I love, learning anything. Um, and the phrase in my mind for it is idea sandwiches. When two disparate ideas come together and make something new, that happens. My, my best thinking moments happen when that happens. So I've learned to look for those. Oh, I love that idea sandwiches. <laughs> Thank you so much. So uh, where can people find you? Get in touch. Uh, yeah, ystrickler.com is my email address or my, my website. Uh, <laughs> you, can, you can email me there. Uh, and then there's bentoism.org is where you can find all the bento things. And I'm mm -hmm. on, you know, the other internet places. But yeah, yeah. My, my website has all my writing and stuff. Yeah. And it's got links to your podcast as well, which is, which is really wonderful. Um, Yancy, thank you so much. I will put links to all of the books and things in the show notes. I appreciate the time that you spent with me, which is a little bit longer than planned. And I'm going to wish you a lovely 20 minutes until I see you again in, in Bento Grooms very soon. Thanks again to Yancy for being my guest on the show. You can find him online at ystrickler.com and on Twitter at ystrickler. Of course, you will find all of the details to connect with him and maybe the Band of Society or discover the rest of his work in the show notes. So, friends and listeners, thank you so much for joining us again today. If you want to hear more, take yourself to your favorite podcast app and subscribe or even leave us a review. It would be wonderful to hear from you. If you want to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter or on LinkedIn and at underscore out of the clouds on Instagram, where I also share guided meditations and other inspirations and daily musings about mindfulness. You can soon find all of my episodes and find out more about my projects at anvmilitano.com if you don't know how to spell it that's fine it's also in the show notes you can sign up to receive email updates I promise I won't spam you and that's it for this episode thank you so much for listening again and I hope you'll join us again next time until then be well and be safe thank you <laughs>